So, uh, we're in Acts chapter 14 this evening, 8 and following. Acts chapter 14, 8 and following. And I'll remind you that um, in this portion of the book of Acts, we're in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. And in the first missionary journey at this point, Paul and Barnabas are in Central Asia in the province of Galatia, which would now be in southern Turkey, modern day. And they're traveling from town to town to preach the gospel there. And so with that, I'll begin by reading verses 8 through 13. But let me say a prayer first for God's blessing. Lord, we do ask, please, that you would bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching, and the response to your holy word. And we ask this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This city and this missionary effort is the first of its kind in this significant way. Up until this point, when Paul and Barnabas had gone into a town on this first missionary journey, where would they go to first and foremost to share the gospel? Where would they go? They go to the synagogue, right? They would go into towns go to the synagogue where there would be Jews, where there would be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and there would be what the Bible calls God-fearers, Gentiles that fear God that have not yet um, received circumcision and uh, become Jewish in that way. But here in the city of Lystra, apparently there is no synagogue. It was unlike the cities Paul and Barnabas had visited prior. And perhaps for the first time in their missionary work, Paul and Barnabas were reaching the Gentiles, purely Gentiles, with the gospel without approaching them through the common ground of Judaism. And and so this event was a total, we're not in Kansas anymore event. And uh, we'll see that in this different venue, how they made changes to their approach based on the situation and based on the audience. One of the shifts that we see is that Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, switches Paul's name from Saul 
to Paul. He shifts from using the name Saul to using the name Paul. Now, <clears throat> I used to, to think that maybe Saul was sort of like the pre-conversion name, and then after he was converted, he used the name Paul. There's this Christian rapper that says, I once was a Saul, but now I'm a Paul. But I, what we think is going on here is that his, his Jewish name is Saul. And so in the former Jewish contexts, he was using his Jewish name Saul. Paul was his Latin and Greek name. And so Luke shifts to using Paul when Paul is among Gentiles. But this probably reflects how Paul used his names. So this likely reflects changes practical changes that Paul made in order to be most effective with his audience. He did not make changes that were morally corrupt, but he made and supported changes which were morally indifferent, but were on the moral high ground of love because they enhanced his ability to reach people. A second change that we see here is since there is no synagogue, they go into an open public meeting area, a public venue. Now, we don't know if this was um, a marketplace or if they were standing in front of a pagan temple or in front of a pagan idol, but they're preaching there in a public venue to Leicester to anyone who will listen. And even though, as we see here, the people will speak the Lyconian language, they understand Greek. So Paul's going to be preaching to them in Greek, and they're able to understand. Well, among the listeners is this disabled man, and Luke, who was the writer of the book of Acts, as well as the writer of the book of Luke, as a profession was what? What was Luke? Luke the what? The physician, right? Okay, and he describes the situation in detail, it, it, he says, this man had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. And perhaps this man had been brought to this public area by family or friends in order for him to beg. It doesn't say here that he did this, but we have an account elsewhere of that kind of thing being done. And this man listens to Paul's message. Paul is preaching the gospel, and this man believes this man believes what Paul is saying about Christ. And Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, perceives faith in this man. And then Paul speaks to him in a loud voice. And I don't think he speaks to him in a loud voice because the man is hard of hearing it all. Paul is speaking to him in a loud voice, almost assuredly, in order that the crowds may hear what he's saying. In fact, when Luke describes the situation, he says there were crowds, plural. And why does Paul want the crowds to hear? Well, as the miracle in this man is being performed through Paul, the Lord's healing him. Of course, Paul wants mercy upon this man. The Lord wants mercy upon this man. But Paul also wants to, the people to see the power of God at work. And he wants the people to see that by this miracle, that his message is authenticated. He wants them to see that this message that he's preaching is validated by an amazing miracle. And so Paul, as the Greek text says, literally says, stand straight up on your feet. 
And I feel like if Hollywood were showing this event, probably what it would do is slowly the man would gain strength in those parts that had been lame, and his body would begin to unfold, and the music would crescendo, and he would stand up right as there, the cymbal crashed. But if that happened, that would be an inaccurate depiction of what took place here because there was no slow unfolding, slow gaining of strength at all. This man jumps up and for the first time in his life begins to walk. Imagine this man's jubilation, the wonder, the jubilation of his family and friends and the amazement of the people. And again, these onlookers were not few in number. And the effect that Paul wants from this miracle is that the people would listen to his preaching and the people might come to know the living God and be saved from their sins. But what happens? What happens is unanticipated. Again, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. When Peter preached to a Jewish crowd in Acts chapter 3, after... A crippled man was healed. What happened? What was it? 5,000 people came to the Hey, if we got someone coming forward, we can be Baptist for the evening. This, it, it, Peter preached to a Jewish crowd, healed a crippled, and 5,000 people came to believe in the Lord. In this purely pagan culture, Paul, he, again, again, the Lord's doing the healing, but Paul heals a cripple, preaches, and what happens here? The crowd erupts in their language. The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Not the result at all that they wanted from this miracle. Now, Zeus in... Greek religion was the father of gods and men, ruling from Mount Olympus. Hermes was his son and was regarded as the messenger, the intercessor between mortals and the divine. He was to relay the messages from the gods to men. So Paul here is the speaker to go, oh, this must be Hermes, and Barnabas, who's kind of being quiet over there, must be Zeus. This is just... An interesting little fact I'll throw out that the name Hermes gives the etymological origin for the word hermeneutics. Hermes was the one who was the messenger, right? And hermeneutics is the discipline of rightly interpreting what you're reading. Okay, we talk about the hermeneutics in preaching, so I thought that was interesting. But they began calling Barnabas Zeus, Paul Hermes, again, likely because Paul was the main speaker. And, and the, the people revered them as deities. And outside the city, they had a temple built to Zeus. And what's interesting is in uh, the archaeological evidence is found in the vicinity of this town of Lystra in the Laconian language, an inscription there that says priests of Zeus and a statue of Hermes. 
Well, the crowd and the priest wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas as deities. And the temple was just outside the city wall. And so the priest takes not just some inexpensive animal for sacrifice. He doesn't take pigeons. He doesn't take doves. He takes bulls dressed with garlands made of wool and leads them outside the city to the temple of Zeus. The priests and the people wish to honor Paul and Barnabas, sacrifice these animals to them. And there's an interesting background to the story. There was a Roman poet named Ovid who lived from 43 B.C. to 17 A.D. And he wrote that there was a legend at the time concerning Zeus and Hermes, although he used the Roman names for those gods, Jupiter and Mercury. They had same gods but different names from the Romans and the Greeks. And the legend was that Zeus and Hermes had visited the area in the province of Phrygia next door to Galatia, where Lystra is, that they had visited there, but they had been denied lodging by the people. They were veiled, right? And people denied them lodging. But then finally, an elderly man and his wife welcomed the gods to their humble dwelling, and the gods rewarded the couple's hospitality by turning their house into a temple and appointing the husband and wife as priests in the temple. And then you know what Zeus and Hermes did to the rest of the people who had not offered them hospitality? Destroyed their homes. And so these people in Lystra would have known this legend, believed it. And so here they are thinking, Zeus and Hermes are back and they're pumped about the miracle and they want to please the gods, but they also want to avoid the punishment that Zeus and Hermes put upon the people of Phrygia. And as we think about this passage, people, I want to encourage us to feel pity for these people, to feel love for these people. These people represent multitudes of people that are among us today. They have deep afflictions and trials. We have this cripple man. They believe in the divine. They're not, even, they're not atheists. They believe they need the help of the divine. And they will make sacrifices to the ones whom they believe can help them. They are a people in need. And like great multitudes during their time and during our time, they have a really messed up understanding of the divine. They know there's a God or gods, but they have a really messed up understanding of God and His nature, His being. They want happiness. They want freedom. They want relief from pain. But they are among those searching for relief from those things outside of Jesus, blindly groping down wrong tunnels. And we may at times get frustrated with such people. We may at times get 
reproved or disliked or even persecuted by such people. But our goal is not to harm them. Our goal is not to overcome evil with evil. Our goal is not to vanquish them. Our goal is not to take them out. But it is to share Jesus with them in the confidence that some of them will be saved. Now verses 14 through the middle of 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, They tore their robes and rushed out in the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. Now, again, these people were shouting this stuff in the Lyconian language and were told about the priests coming, taking the bulls to go outside the city. So I don't know if Paul and Barnabas understood within a minute what was going on or whether it was 15 minutes what was going on. We don't know exactly. But there was some time between the healing of the cripple and the arrival of the priests and his sacrificial animals. And when, when Paul and Barnabas understand what's taking place, friends, they, they don't take even a second to glory in this. I mean, there's been some tough times during this first missionary journey. The first seven verses of this chapter, they get run out of the former town before they come to Lystra. You know, and they might say, Well, it kind of feels good to be appreciated, you know, but they don't take a moment to do that. Rather, they tear their robes, running into the crowds. Tearing of the robe was a sign of deep emotional upset. And they're saying, why are you doing this? We're just human beings like you. It was like when Peter showed up at the house of Cornelius. Cornelius fell down before him and Peter said, stand up. I too am only a man. And maybe they remember too, you know, the story of Herod was with the, the crowd and the crowd trying to win favor with him said, this is the voice, not of a man, but of a God. And uh, anyway, the scripture says Herod did not give glory to God and an angel struck him dead and he was eaten with worms, you know. And, and it seems to be saying that if he had given glory to God, the angel wouldn't have struck him dead and he wouldn't have been eaten with worms, right? Um. Y'all, Boyd's probably mentioned to y'all George Whitfield, the the 18th century preacher from England who was powerful in speech, both in England and the U.S. Benjamin Franklin even uh, wrote about him. He had tremendous popularity. And uh, there were demands by some of his followers to perpetuate his memory to to form a denomination with George Whitfield himself as the head. And George Whitfield, when this would come up, would invariably answer this way. He would say, let the name Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Superficial religion is often marked by the veneration of men rather than the veneration of God. There's a tendency to be overawed by people, to ascribe them power and glory and honor that belong only to God. Uh, There's a wonderful pastor in the PCA who's in his early 90s now, and I had the privilege of having him alongside when I was a pastor in North Carolina, um, alongside for me for a number of years. In fact, he was in his, maybe his 60s, maybe 70s, and we went out on the boat, and he said he wanted to go skiing. It had been a long time. And uh, so he jumped out, and I threw him one ski. I was about to throw him the second one. He goes, no, I'll just go with one. Got up on his 
first try. I mean, I think he saw him before in his life, but that was impressive. But then he wanted to go tubing behind the boat, and it was 4th of July, and the water was big with all the waves and everything. And so he's riding on the tube, and he he hits a wave, and his fist slaps him in the eye. And so he shows up to church the next week, and he's getting up giving announcements, and he says, and he has on a pair of sunglasses. He says, I want to show you what your pastor did to me. And he takes off his sunglasses and his big, big black eye. But anyway, Gene Craven is named Wonderful Godly Man. And Gene told me one time that a woman came to him after her husband had committed adultery again. And she asked Gene, she asked Gene if he could help her. And Gene said, I told her, I'm not sure I can help you but I know someone who can, referring to the Lord. It's easy at times to venerate people. It's easy at times to receive veneration. Perhaps some of you have authority over others. Perhaps some of you are involved in discipleship ministries or helping people through crisis. It's important to remember who you are, that you have feet of clay. And Paul and Barnabas are so upset about the praise given them that they tore their clothes in anguish, saying, we're only men like you. And they deliberately turn away the sacrifices. Stop bringing those sacrifices, they say. And dear friends, if people ascribe to you what belongs to God alone, they are in sin. And also what they ascribe to you, if it belongs to God alone, isn't true. If you receive what what alone belongs to God, you are in sin. Jesus said to Satan, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord God and serve Him only. Uh, You know, I I don't hear Chuck Swindoll much, but sometimes when I'm going through the radio, I, I hear him on the radio, and he always has the most chipper, cheery voice in his preaching. And I heard him say one time that he gets so excited about preaching, sometimes he can't sleep the night before. And I'm just impressed by that. Now, there's sometimes the night before I'm preaching, I can't sleep as well either, but it's more like a, ah! (laughs) Rather than just being so excited, enthusiastic about it. But he said that children have a way of keeping pastors humble. He said, no child welcomes home his father with, Welcome, O great man of God and discipler of the saints. (laughs) And there's this, well, he passed away a couple years ago, Jim Baird, who was one of the founders of the the PCA and a wonderfully gifted preacher. He's had a big impact on my life, my family's life. And, And he told the story that one Sunday they were going home from church and he was feeling especially good about his sermon that day. So he's driving, his wife is sitting to his right, and he says, I wonder how many truly great preachers there are in this world. And, and his wife said, one less than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, we will not be proud if we remember that the Lord could cast us headlong into the flames of hell while the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. We must remember what we've been saved from. 
And Paul and Barnabas are zealous for God's praise and for the people's good. Paul writes to 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your what? As your bondservants, as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Okay, now verse, uh, jumping in the middle of 15 through 18. Okay, let me just pick up where it was. Uh, he had said, uh, uh, Men, we are of the same nature as you, and then going on, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, and, and perhaps and perhaps vain things, perhaps he's pointing towards some, some idols, some carved images that are around, right around them. You should turn from these vain things to a living God, and here he's quoting Scripture, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he has not left himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. I want you to note another and indeed major change that Paul makes in his ministry approach here. As, as we have recorded in the book of Acts, when Paul went into the synagogue, what did he do? He recounted succinctly the history of Israel, the promises of God, and showed how Jesus was a fulfillment of all that was being pointed towards in the, the law and the prophets. Peter did the same thing when he was preaching early in the book of Acts. History of Israel, Jesus' fulfillment. Stephen, when he was standing before the Sanhedrin, the history of Israel and Jesus is the fulfillment. They give an Old Testament survey and show how Jesus is the fulfillment. Here in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas are not anywhere near the temple. There's not a synagogue in town. There are, they are among a people without knowledge of the Scriptures. And Paul here, and he'll do it again in Acts chapter 17 in a totally secular pagan area, begins with the most fundamental truths. Friends, your idols are meaningless. Turn from these. There is a God who made heaven and earth and sustains everything. Look to Him. And He says, in the past, God let the nations, excepting Israel, go their own way. These people chose their own way of life. The way they chose was laden with sin. They were responsible for their actions. But it wasn't as if God didn't reveal Himself at all in creation. He showed Himself to them through what He made. God's invisible attributes have been shown, revealed through what He's been made. And He says here, He did good to them. He sent rain from above, gave you fruitful seasons, filled you with food and with gladness, granted you joyful hearts. And the people of Lystra must acknowledge, yeah, they didn't have control over the seasons. They didn't have control over the rain. They didn't know how to, they, they didn't make things grow. This God who created and sustains all things, Paul is saying, did this and looked to him. And while the scriptures, of course, are necessary to lead one to a knowledge of Christ, 
the knowledge of nature is a powerful witness that there is a God who created all. And yet even with Paul's excellent preaching, even with their tearing of robes, they had a tough time dissuading the people from sacrificing to them. It's a different ballgame out here in this foreign world. Again, Peter Hill's a cripple in Jerusalem, preaches and the number of Christians grows to 5,000. Paul Hill's a cripple in Lystra. Gentile crowds want to slaughter animals to him and Barnabas in worship of them. This shows us some of the difficulties that Paul and Barnabas faced in preaching to a purely Gentile audience, but it also shows you, dear friends, how helpful it can be to have a biblical background. And I'll encourage any of you that may have children that grew up in the church that have a treasure of knowledge within their hearts, but they're not following the Lord right now. May the Lord use that treasure to somewhere down the road, hopefully sooner rather than later, to, to bring them back to that knowledge of Christ and to fan their hearts into flame. Paul made practical changes to be the most effective with his audience. Again, he did not make changes that were morally corrupt. His goal was always towards Christ, but his messages were not one size fits all. Paul thought about his audience. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and following, Paul writes this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. You know, Paul probably liked a good steak. I don't know if he preferred the name Saul over Paul, but whatever, you read what he says, you read his practice. He put his preferences aside. Perhaps better said, he put his preferences into subjection of the lofty and critical goal of reaching people for Jesus. Now, friends, you and I all know that a conversion is 100% the work of God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, with that in mind, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. He was thinking. He was looking at the people he was trying to reach. He was looking at the culture he was trying to reach. And he was gladly willing. Indeed, he made changes in how he did things for the good of all. I may have told you about Dee Whalen, who's gone on to be with the Lord uh, was a pastor in North Carolina and, and like a father, grandfather to me. And of all the wonderful pastors I've worked with, and I've worked with many, I think his style of ministry is the one that um, I adopted the most. But his sister Cora was a missionary, I think for 20 to 30 years in Korea. Indeed, he was over visiting her one time, and they were having dinner in the home of a Korean family, and some very odd-looking food was served to them. And, and, and uh, Didi looked at his sister Cora kind of with this, I guess, face of protest or whatever, and Cora said, 
Where'er he leads me, I will follow. Whatever he feeds me, I will swallow. (laughs) (laughs) Dear friends, let us be a people so compelled by love. Let us, even though we might get frustrated with, even though we might be criticized by, let us be so compelled by love towards unbelievers that we're willing to make personal changes and cast aside preferences when it makes sense that we may, to use Paul's language, save some. So in closing, I'll make these remarks. You know, it's interesting that these Lyconian people said the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, they got it all wrong, right? But truly and really, the second person of the triune God has become a man and has come down to us. And he is the one who can save. We don't put our trust in men who can save or cannot save, rather. We do not venerate people and assign to ascribe to them only that which belongs to God. All glory belongs to God. And also, we don't want to seek or receive what belongs to God alone. But let us be a people compelled by the love of the lost. And when it makes sense, making some changes, not in any way morally corrupt or anything that's against Scripture, but seeking to save some. Again, recognizing anyone that's ever saved is all a work of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you that the second person of the triune God didn't just become like a man, but became a man and came down to be among us and to save us. And Father, we thank you that in your providence that the message of salvation was sent out among the nations. And here we are 2,000 years later, made up of different backgrounds, um, most of us, if not all of us, Gentiles, worshiping the one true God. We thank you. And Father, we, we pray that, that even as we value as precious the, the assembly uh, and, and our music and our traditions and our creeds that, that you have used, that the Holy Spirit has used to build up and encourage us. Help us as we're meeting people who uh, may be bereft of any biblical knowledge of God. Help us to be thinking. Help us to have servants' hearts. Help us to be full of love. And help us to be used by God uh, to bring the message of your son Jesus for his glory and that some might be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.